knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, we've been looking at Israel's journey that started in Egypt and is going to ultimately end in the promised land. And we've noticed that God has not taken them the most direct route. The most direct route would be following the Mediterranean Sea straight to the promised land. He takes them very far south. We're going to go as far south as Mount Sinai, and then he's going to come up on the other side. You know, but this whole time it's through the wilderness. Uh, and we've noted that you know, there's purpose for this longer way, this longer path, that each destination that they go, God ultimately is bringing them to these places because he wants to teach them on this journey. He has lessons he wants them to learn, you know, to help them spiritually grow. And there's often tests as well uh, as they go, lessons and tests that hopefully, you know, they'll pass and hopefully, and if they fail, they'll learn from them not to fail in the future. And so we've had many stops so far. And at the end of chapter 15 last week, you know, they went from, you know, having the place of Mara where it's bitter and there's nothing to drink and then God having Moses throw the tree and it's sweet and then he takes them to pretty much their best destination so far. They come to Elam. There's 12 wells of water. Uh, there's 70 uh, palm trees. It's just a place of fruitfulness, a place of blessing and they're camped there and I'm sure they enjoyed it and maybe some of them said, you know, we can just stay here for a while, Lord. This is good. This is great. This is the, the best place we've been so far since Egypt. But God has this journey continuing. And they're going to go to a new place, and they're going to have a new problem. There's going to be a new lesson. There's going to be a new test. And from all of this, there'll be things that we can learn as we look here at Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse 1. It says this, And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." So the Israelites leave this place of fruitfulness, this place with all this water, this food, Elam, and God brings them to a new destination, which is referred to as the wilderness of sin. Now, this term sin is not like sin that we typically think of, of you know, disobeying one of God's commandments. The Hebrew word here means thorns. Uh, it actually would be more literally translated sin uh, as opposed to sin. But the point is, you know, they named it most likely after what the wilderness is. It's just kind of this barren place full of thorny things. Uh, and so we'll just call it the wilderness of thorns. And so they go from this oasis in Elam. We got all the water we need. We got the shade. We got the fruit. And now we're in this wilderness of thorns, and they encounter another problem. 
But notice before we see their problem, when they arrive at their destination, we're told on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. If you remember, they left Egypt on the 15th day of the first month. So now their journey that started in Egypt has lasted now for an entire month. So this huge group of people that went to the Red Sea, went through it, had all these different stops. Now they've been out and about away from Egypt for over a month. So any of the food that they had when they departed Egypt, that's been eaten. You know, and now they're in this wilderness of thorns. And they've seen a lot of things that are pretty amazing from God. He's protected them from the death of the firstborn through the Passover, the blood of the Lamb. He's delivered them at the Red Sea. He's provided for them at Mara for something to drink. And now they're in this new place. They encounter this new problem. And the problem is they're hungry. They don't have any food. And, you know, hey, when you're hungry, you got issues and they're in that place of, of wanting to eat. And so they respond in a way that we're going to see is going to become very typical for the nation of Israel. And we've already seen it's becoming typical because it's not the first time they respond like this. When they're at the Red Sea, what do they do? They complain. When they're at Mara and there's nothing to drink, what do they do? They complain. When they're here and there's no food, what do they do? Once again, we see them complaining. Now, this is something I want to just note. We're going to see a lot of things about complaint tonight. But the first thing is, it's sad that they didn't learn their lesson from last time because they're pretty much in almost the same identical situation. It's just the difference between water and food. You know, and you can't go as long without water as you can with food. So they had a point where they went three days without water. They're thinking, man, we're all going to you know, die of thirst. And God provides water for them miraculously. He does, gives them what they need. And they should have learned from that. Okay. When we're in this desperate situation, we can trust the Lord. We can know he can take care of us. And so we don't need to complain. We don't need to get all upset. We need to see to ask the Lord to provide because we've seen him do it. You would think that they would have learned that lesson because they just experienced this. just a few days before this. But now they come to a new destination. They have a new need, similar to the last one. Instead of water, it's food. But once again, they do the same thing. They complain against Moses and ultimately against God. Now, unfortunately, you know, when we suffer, when we go through difficulties, when we encounter things that we want or need and don't have, this is a response that all of us are guilty of. This is something that we each, you know, struggle with, I'm sure. But I want to look at two things that the Israelites do. We've noted in the past, you know, the problems of complaining, the sin that it is. But there's two things that, you know, leads them to do. Because of their complaints, they're led to do these two things that I want us to take note of. Because one, they're not things that they should have done. They're not things that we should ever do. And so hopefully we can learn not to do them. Uh, but they're common become uh, by people who complain. So the first thing that the Israelites, you know, do because of complaining is they have a very selective memory of their past. Very selective memory of what Egypt was like. Notice what we're told. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. Notice that they encounter this, this problem. They're hungry and it causes them to have a very selective memory. They have a present problem, and now they have a selective memory of the past. They only choose to remember the fact that Egypt had meat. Egypt had bread. 
The two things that we would love to have right now, Egypt had it. Oh, wasn't it so great in Egypt because they had these things that we want. But they seem to forget in Egypt we were slaves. In Egypt we were miserable. In Egypt there were all these issues. But let's not remember those things. Let's just remember the good stuff. Let's just remember what's in Egypt that we don't have now. David Guzik wrote this, Israel selectively remembered the past and thought of their time in Egypt as a good time. They lost sight of God's future for them, and they also twisted the past to support their complaining. This thinking is common among those who complain. You know, a selective memory of the past is something that I'm sure all of us have suffered through, especially when we're in those moments of complaining You know, it's interesting to me that especially when we're complaining against God, against where he has us, against something he's allowed in our life, you know, we often start looking back to the time before we accepted Christ, the time before we had that relationship with God, and all of a sudden we start looking back on that. Lord, I'm following you now, and look where I'm at. Oh, it was so nice when I wasn't following you. It was so great back in that time before I accepted you. And we kind of have this selective memory of, oh, life wasn't as hard back then. Oh, I got to do this thing and that thing, which I don't get to do now. Oh, I had this, that, and the next thing, which I don't have now. And we just start looking back to the past with this selective memory of how great it was, how fulfilling it was, whatever those thoughts are. But you know what? We don't have a realistic view. We're not looking at the reality that we were lost. We're not looking at the reality that we were hopeless, that we were helpless, that we were unfulfilled, that we were empty, that the pleasures of sin were fleeting and the the consequences of sin were destroying our lives. Those aren't the things that that we're looking back on. We're, We're seeing things with this selective memory. We're only looking at the positive, but not the negative. And I think something important to understand when we start complaining about our present situation is that it often leads to this selective memory of our past encounters. And that kind of selective memory is exactly what Satan wants from us. And that's the thing that God doesn't want. You know, Satan knows I will be so much more victorious in your life when you look back at what I used to be and when you used to follow me and when you used to live for this world. If you see that in a positive light, Man, that makes it so much easier to draw you back. That makes it so much easier to tempt you with these things. If you look at that and think, oh, that was, those were the good old days. Those were the days when I really, really was fulfilled in life. When we fall into that trap of, of looking back in that way, that puts us in a very dangerous place to be deceived by the enemy. So the first thing the Israelites complaining leads them to do is have this selective memory of their time in Egypt. They thought it was so good but forgot about all the negative things that God delivered them from. The second thing the Israelites complaining leads them to do is to assume the worst about God's people and God himself. Notice they say, Moses, you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Notice now that the Israelites are complaining about their present circumstances. They're looking back at their past circumstances, thinking it's so great. And now the people that are placed by God to lead them, they look at them and they assume pretty much the worst possible thing they could assume. You have brought us to this uh, wilderness to kill us, to make us starve to death. You know, that is the, the uh, accusation, that is the you know, assumption that they bring to Moses and Aaron. 
But notice that it's not Moses and Aaron that's leading the way. It's not Moses and Aaron that led them to the Red Sea. It's not Moses and Aaron that led them to Mara. It's not Moses and Aaron that led them to this wilderness full of thorns. God is the one who is leading them. So this assumption is ultimately against God. They're assuming that God has brought them to this place just to kill them. And this isn't the first time they made this assumption. At the Red Sea, they said the same thing. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Why did you bring us out here just to kill us? Assuming, you know, God has the worst in store for them. Assuming that God's people have the worst in store for them. You know, their assumptions, not only were they wrong, but they were completely unfounded. You know, and this is a thing that, you know, you could understand if there were people like Moses and Aaron who were just bad leaders and always led them astray and, and they're starting to assume the worst. Okay, you, you could get why they might do that. But there's nothing that Moses and Aaron have done, and more importantly, there's nothing that God has done that would bring them to this place where they would conclude, oh, God's going to kill us. You know, I mean, God has delivered them. God has provided for them. God has always been there for them. You know, so leading up to this, the only thing that they should assume is God's going to continue to deliver us. God's going to continue to provide for us. God's going to continue to do these things. But instead, they assume the complete worst of God and the men that God has placed over them to lead. You know, when you and I complain against God or someone else that God has placed in our life, sadly... This is something that happens with us. You know, I know that I am guilty of it, that we come to this place because we're complaining about a person or complaining about God, complaining about our situation, and then we come to a place where we start assuming the worst of God and these other people. But I'm also sure that all of us have experienced the other side of that, experienced the pain, experienced the hurt, experienced the frustration when someone else assumes the worst of you. All of us who are married, I'm sure at some point in time, your spouse assumed the worst of your motives, assumed the worst of something you were trying to do, and that hurts. I mean, that's not what my heart was at all. That's not what I was trying to do at all. I'm sure that you've had people in your life that you're trying to help, that you're trying to do something, and they assume something that's so horrible. You're just here to destroy me. You're just here to to ruin my life. And when we have that happen to us, it doesn't feel good. It's a painful thing. And especially when you think, man, I haven't done anything that should lead you to come to that conclusion. What have I done in our relationship that would make you think that way of me? That would make you think that that's the thought I have to you, that that's what I would want for you. But I think of God. I think, you know, how does he feel when we treat him that way? When he just says, you know, all I've ever done is sacrifice for you, is to love you, is to provide for you, to make you my child. I've given you all that I can, and yet, still, you often assume the worst of me. I'm there for you. I never leave you or forsake you. I sacrifice myself on a cross for you, and yet, that's not enough for you to assume the best of me. And I wonder how hurtful it is to the Lord when we even sometimes conclude like they that he would actually do something evil. They would just wipe us out for no reason. So the Israelites are a good example of why we need to be very careful when we're in that place of complaining, especially against God, but also against others as well. Because it's a sin, but it also leads us to two very negative things. It leads us to assuming the worst of people, and it leads us to this selective memory of our past. 
So the Israelites complained to Moses about their problem of being hungry, of not having food. And let's see now what God does. <laughs> Ultimately, what God maybe, if we were God, would do would be rebuke them. But, you know, God doesn't do that. Let's see how God deals with their problem. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So the Israelites have this problem. They have this great need. They need food. God sees their problem. He hears their complaints. And now he says to Moses, hey, I'm going to meet the need. Moses, I am going to rain down bread from heaven. And then God gives a, a little bit of a specific way in which he wants them to collect this bread. And he's going to give some more specifics. We'll just start with these. He says, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So God has a specific way. I'm going to bring this miraculous bread from heaven to provide for your hunger. But when you go collect it, I have some instructions for you. And ultimately, we're going to get into these instructions more as we go through this chapter. But notice what we're told. There's a reason for why God is saying, hey, I have specific instructions for you. Why? To test you. To see whether you will walk in my law or not. Now remember, they're on the journey to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where the law is going to be given. And God is now, even before the law is given, testing them. Will you obey what I tell you? It's just going to be simple. I'm going to give you a very simple command to see whether or not you can even do that. Whether or not you can be obedient to something that I ask you to do. And so that's going to be part of what this test is. I'm going to provide this food. But I'm going to give you some you know, you know, things that I, I want you to do in collecting them just to see if whether or not you will obey what I tell you to do. So God communicates this to Moses, and now Moses is going to communicate this message to the people. Verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron said to the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. So Moses starts by telling the Israelites, you know, something that you would think they would already know. You would think that this would be really clear after what they have experienced in these last couple months. He says, at evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. <laughs> I thought they would have known this. I mean, look at what he did. All the ten plagues, taking them to the Red Sea, parting it, walking through, destroying the whole Egyptian army and Pharaoh in the Red Sea, going to Marah, not having water, providing the water, now bringing them to this place. But before that, they have this oasis in Elam. You would think at this point in time, they're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'm confident the Lord is the one who's brought us out of Egypt. But Moses is saying, now God has to do something else to help you understand this truth, this reality, because all this stuff so far hasn't really seemed to sink in and get you to understand what God has done. 
You know, they're still struggling with trusting God. Still struggling to trust that He'll take care of them, that He'll provide for them. And you see it in their complaints. You would think, all right, guys, haven't I done this enough that when there's no food, you know that I'm going to provide? No? Okay, you're not there yet? Well, I'm going to do another thing for you so that you can know this about me. And Moses goes on to say, In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for He hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Moses knows something's coming. He says, the morning coming, God's going to provide this miraculous bread from heaven. You're going to see God's glory. But i got to ask you guys a question. And the question is, hey, why are you complaining against us? Moses wants them to understand something. You know what, guys? Ultimately, your complaint shouldn't be against us. We haven't brought you here. We're not the ones leading this. God is. And that's why he continues to say, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Moses wants to make something very serious and clear to the Israelites. Hey, you're complaining against us. You're coming to Moses. You're coming to Aaron. But what you need to really realize is these complaints aren't really against us. What you're truly complaining against is God. And that's a dangerous thing. That's a dangerous place to be. Because sometimes we're like, well, I'm not complaining against God. I'm just complaining against God's servant. Moses says, no, 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 no. God's the one who's brought you here. God's the one who's doing all this. God's the one who will provide for you. And so your complaint right now is ultimately against him because he's brought you to this wilderness of thorns and he's brought you to a place where there's no food. And so if you've got an issue, you've got an issue with him and your complaint is ultimately against him. You see, Moses and Aaron, they didn't deliver the Israelites. God did. They didn't lead the Israelites. God did. They didn't provide for the Israelites. God did. They didn't bring the Israelites to this place. God did. And so it's not us. It's God. If you've got a complaint, you're ultimately complaining against him. And now we're going to see what God does. Verse 9. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to the congregation of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quail came up at the evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said, To one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. So Moses tells Aaron, hey, tell the Israelites, come near. God's heard your complaint. And fortunately for you, he's not going to rebuke you. He's not going to strike you down. He's actually going to provide what you need. And so as the the congregation of Israel starts coming to where Moses and Aaron are, they look and they see something that would have been very important for them to see. We're told they see the glory of God in a cloud. 
Now, this isn't the first time that they would have seen this. Remember, God was directing them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire at night. You know, that was the thing that they recognized. God's presence is with us. He's, he's guiding us. He's leading us. And it seems like perhaps God hasn't shown up in that way for a little bit of time. And maybe they're like, oh, man, you know, is God with us anymore? And now that glory is there in that cloud. And I'm sure it would have been an encouragement and a good reminder. I'm with you guys. I'm here. I know your need. And you know what? I'm going to take care of your need. At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You know, God tells the Israelites, I'm going to meet your need for food by doing two wonderful things. In the evening, I'm going to provide you meat, and in the morning, I'm going to provide you bread. And what a great thing for them. He could have just said, I'm just going to give you some bread. I love meat, and if I were there, I would have been very happy that he provides meat as well. And notice that God says this provision of meat and bread should cause the Israelites to know something. It should cause them to know that I am the Lord your God. Now this is interesting because remember when the plagues were coming and God told Moses, I am doing this for a purpose so that the Egyptians might know that I am God. And then as we keep going through the plagues, we find out, well, actually, my purpose is even bigger than that. I want the world that's going to hear about these plagues that I have poured out on the Egyptians to know that I am God. That the miracles that I'm bringing of judgment is for the world to know the kind of God that I am and the power that I possess. But now he says, you know what, I'm going to bring two miracles of provision. And they're specifically for you, my chosen people, so that you would not just know that I am God like all the other people would know, but that you would know that I'm your God. Notice it's not just this general concept like God wanted the rest of the world to know. They need to know who the Lord really is. They worship all these false gods. They're going to find out who the real God is. But for you, Israel, it's not just knowing who the real God is. It's also recognizing that he is yours personally, that he is your God And he is going to take care of you and provide for you because of that relationship that you have with him. You know, I think this is such an important truth that we need to understand about God. You know, when you're not a follower of Christ, yeah, you need to start with recognizing who the true God is. But once we accept Christ, he becomes our father. He becomes our provider. And we need to realize this reality about God, that he's always going to take care of our needs. Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know, Jesus, when speaking about worry, says, you know what, don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about what you wear. You know, don't worry about these things. Why? Your heavenly Father knows what you need. He's going to take care of your needs. You need to trust him to do that. Just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that you need. God will add them to you. He will take care of these things for you. You know, every time that God provides for us, it should just be this great reminder. A reminder that, hey, you know what? I know that he's not just the God, but he's my God. It's a personal relationship. It's something that I have. He's my father who takes care of me. He provides for me. He's not this distant God, but a personal one. So this miraculous provision of meat and bread was just to help the Israelites come to this knowledge. Because they're slow learners. And, you know, we're typically slow learners as well. And so he's like, hey, I'm going to do another miracle for you to help you gain this knowledge of who I really am. 
And we're told the kind of meat that God provides for them. We're told that quail came up at the evening and covered the camp. And so God miraculously sends you know, this huge you know, amount of quail. I mean, imagine how much quail would need to come every single evening in order for millions of people to eat. Here's a picture of a quail. It's a little smaller than a chicken. Uh, it would feed probably about one to three people. So if you've got several million people, you're going to need hundreds of thousands of quail coming in every night. But you know what? If you've never eaten quail, it tastes great. It's a good meal. God's being very gracious in, in providing this for them. You know, they can just take those birds and fry them up or cook them however they want to, and it makes it a great evening meal. But you know what? We're told something else. It wasn't just the quail. In the morning, they have something that's even more unique because they would have known what quail was. I'm sure they would have eaten quail before, but what's coming was miraculous and special and new, and no one else had this ever before this time it's referred to as bread from heaven. Now, we're given a few details about this bread from heaven. We're told that when the layer of dew lifted in the morning, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. But there's a few other verses in Scripture that give us a couple other details as well to kind of help you think, of like, what is this bread from heaven? What does it look like? What's it like? At the, uh, in verse 31 of the same chapter, we're told it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, we're told, Now the manna was like coriander seed, its color like the color of bedellum, which is the color of a pearl, so still white. Uh, the people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans and made cakes of it, and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. So notice that, you know, the quail, they just come in. You know, God's just bringing them in, but, you know, they didn't, you know, when you think of bread from heaven, it wasn't like these loaves already baked, ready to go, hot, you know, you know get some butter and let's start eating it. That, that's not the bread from heaven that God provided. It was this White substance that looked like a, a coriander seed. Here's a picture of a coriander seed if you don't know what it looks like. It's quite small. So imagine these seeds. They're brown, but picture them uh, white and this kind of substance that would be all over the ground. But, you know, I think it's great that God didn't have these, you know, pre-baked loaves coming from heaven because now these people can take this, you know, just like we take wheat or we take flour, and they can make their own bread. They can make their own Pastries, notice what number tells us. They cooked it in pans. They made cakes out of it. Its taste was like the taste of pastries prepared with oil. You know, I never thought of this before as I was reading this. I was like, you know what? The only thing that comes to mind when I think of a pastry prepared with oils are donuts. I mean, that's what we got. We got pastries prepared with oils. I mean, God gave them donuts. I mean, ultimately, they could take this bread from heaven and this is what we're told in Numbers that they do with it. They put it in oil, and it tastes like this wonderful pastry. You know, they had these great donuts for breakfast. They had quail for evening. And so if someone gives you this dirty look because you're eating donuts, and you say, hey, donuts are just like bread from heaven, so quit judging me. But, um, you know, this is an amazing thing that God provides for them. Uh, and, you know, notice what we're told in verse 15. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. 
So imagine this, you know, the frost in the morning, the dew's there, it kind of goes away, and you look, and the ground's just covered in this white kind of coriander seed-looking stuff, and they, they respond, as most people would who don't know what something is, they say, what is it? And Moses is like, this is the bread that God has provided for you, so, you know, gather it up and eat it. Now this is interesting because we know this bread as manna. We're going to see that that's what they're going to call it at the end of this chapter, Manna means, what is it? And so it just stuck. They looked and they say, what is this? And this is bread from heaven. Okay, so they just, from that time on, just called it, what is it? They call it manna. But actually, when you see God referring to this, he typically refers to it as what it is. Bread from heaven. Uh, So it's not just this unknown thing, but it's this special miraculous thing that God brings from heaven to provide for this need that the Israelites had. Now, once again, we see God providing in unexpected ways. We've seen this over and over again of God doing this, and he's done things that that you wouldn't have expected. You know, we go back to the Passover, and it's like, you know, why are we keeping this lamb and then killing this lamb and then taking the blood of this lamb and putting it on the doorpost and lintel? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, what's the purpose of this, Lord? Uh, and then, you know, hey, well, what's good a, a tree going to do in bitter water? You know, how is that going to help us drink at all? You know, God's been doing things that are just unexpected, but yet produce the result of providing for their need. But also, as we have noted, it's doing something else. It's pointing them to a greater provision. It's pointing them to a greater thing in the future. As we know, the lamb pointed to Jesus. We looked at last week, the tree pointing to the cross. And you know, I believe that also this bread is clearly a provision in the present that is also pointing to something that's even greater in the future in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6, you have a wonderful story, and we all probably heard of it. Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. There's probably about 20,000 people with five loaves, two fish. And right after he does that, those people come and they bring this up. This time in Exodus where God provides manna, the bread from heaven. And Jesus shares with them a very important truth. In John chapter 6, verse 31 says this, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then he said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst." So this group of people who has just been fed miraculously, they're just blown away by what has happened. They come and they're like, you know, this reminds me of back in the day when our forefathers were in the wilderness and God provided manna from heaven. And Jesus is like, oh, I'm glad that you brought that up because I want to share something with you. And Jesus connects himself with manna. Notice the first thing he says is Moses isn't the one who brought that to you. Moses isn't the one who gave you that manna. My father is the one who provided the bread from heaven for you. But you know what? He's provided something even better. He's provided a bread that's even greater than the manna of the wilderness. And I said, really? 
Yeah, this bread gives life to the world. Well, give us this bread always. I mean, we'll just hang with you. You just fed all of us. We'll be with you every day. Keep giving us this bread, Jesus. He says to this people, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. You see, they were thinking of physical bread to eat, and Jesus said, no, no, no. There's something far greater than just having your physical need met. I am the bread from heaven, and I can meet a need far greater that is spiritual. Later on in the book of John chapter 6 as well, Jesus says this in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Once again, Jesus is connecting himself to manna. But he's saying, you know what, that manna, they ate it and it was physically sustaining them for 40 years. But you know what, they still died. But what I offer is greater. Because if you eat what I give, it will give you eternal life. What is this bread? It's me. It's my flesh. I'm going to give of my own life to make it possible for people to have eternal life. And we know how he did that through dying for our sin on the cross. And for those who accept him, they gain that eternal life. So the bread from heaven that sustained the Israelites' life was this picture that was going to point to something far greater that God said, I'm going to have something that provides eternal life. The bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. So once again, we see God providing in the present, but also pointing to a future event that he's going to do with Jesus Christ. Now this is why in our outline, we have in brackets, Christ is the bread of life to remind us of this wonderful connection. So God provides this bread from heaven, but now he's going to give the nation of Israel these specific instructions. And as we noted, this is a test. All right, you got this bread. It's going to come every morning. But I want you to collect it in a certain way. And I'm asking you to do this, ultimately to test you to see whether or not you will obey my law, whether or not you will obey a command that I Give to you. And so let's see what these instructions are. Verse 16 to 21. This is the thing which the Lord commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. So notice here, God says, I have some specific instructions for how to gather this bread from heaven that I am providing for you every single morning. First of all, they were to collect just enough for the day. I don't want you to try to collect more than you need. It's one omer per person, 
Each person needs to go out and collect it. If there's anybody who's maybe too young or too old to go do this, then the head of the home, the man who is the head of the home, he has the responsibility not only to collect for himself, but also to collect for those others who were kids uh, or elderly to make sure that they got what they needed. So a pretty simple test, simple command. Just collect enough that you need for the day. Don't go anymore. Don't try to hoard it. Don't try to, you know, oh, I'm just going to have enough for the whole week. Just get what you need. Well, we find out many of them don't listen. Look at all this, man. We're going to make cakes for a month. Well, the next day they think I'm going to have all this manna. And then they find it's full of worms and it stank. God say, no, I'm not going to allow it to last more than a day. I'm not going to allow you to hoard this and hold on to this. So God specifically makes this manna only last one day, which causes the Israelites to have to be daily dependent on him for their bread. They can't store it up. They can't think, okay, man, I got enough for the whole year. I don't have to worry about God's provision for the next year. I got all this taken care of. I've done it. No, every day they're in a place where they have to depend on God for their daily bread. And God also made it that each individual was responsible for collecting that. If you're wealthy, you can't say, hey, you know what? Yeah, I know you don't have much. You go collect my bread and I'll give you, you know, a shilling here or there. No. Everybody was responsible for getting their own bread except for those who couldn't, but then the responsibility lay on the head of the household to take care of his household and get bread for those who were not able to collect it. You know, these specific instructions for how Israel is to collect manna is really to teach them a very important lesson. And we see one clear lesson that God was going to teach them because we're told in Deuteronomy 8.3 this, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And notice, why did God feed them with manna? Notice we're told that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. You know, this is one of the main lessons through all of this that God is wanting to teach them. As you have to daily collect it. I want you to know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, this is a familiar verse to many people, not because they read Deuteronomy, because many people don't read through Deuteronomy. It's familiar because Jesus said this. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he hadn't eaten for 40 days, Satan says, hey, take these stones and turn them into bread. And then Jesus turns around, and his response to Satan is a quote from this. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I think this is such an important lesson for us to learn. You see, as we note, Jesus is our bread from heaven. And just like the Israelites needed to daily collect their bread, you and I need to daily spend time with Jesus, our bread. The manna for the Israelites was to help provide their physical nourishment. Our time with Jesus each day is there to provide us for our spiritual nourishment. And just like each one of the Israelites had that personal responsibility to collect bread for themselves and not just depend on someone else to do it for them, you and I have a personal responsibility to spend time with Jesus ourselves and not just depend on someone like me sharing a message or someone else doing the work for you. And you know what? If you're the head of your home, 
and you got kids or you got people that aren't able to do that, it is your responsibility as the head of the home to make sure that your kids are being taught the Word of God, to make sure that they are spending that time and that you are encouraging them and teaching them. And just like we see from that physical standpoint, it was the head of the home, how much more important is it for us as the spiritual heads to make sure our family is being spiritually nourished the way that they need to. You know, just like with the Israelites, if they collected it after the sun came up, <laughs> there wasn't anything there. The sun came up and boom, the man is melting away. And this is another great picture for us because oftentimes we kind of put off, we put off, we put off spending that time with the Lord and then the busyness of the day and the distractions of the day hit us. And at the end of the day, we're like, man, I didn't spend any time with the Lord. Where'd the time go? And that's where we got to make that time for the Lord, knowing that, you know what, we got a short window. And for all of us with our different schedules, we know, man, there's that time that I have that I can get quiet before the Lord. But if I don't do it at this time, it's probably not going to happen again anytime this day. And all of a sudden, that opportunity melts away and we lose it. And so we got to make the most and redeem that time. And, you know, I think it's interesting as well. They couldn't live off yesterday's manna. When they wanted to try, it was full of worms and it stank. And I know spiritually, there have been many a times I've tried to live off yesterday's or last week's or last month's you know, spiritual time with the Lord. Oh, that was so great and so encouraging. I'm going to live off that for the next month. And it doesn't work. We need that daily sustenance, that daily time with Jesus to continue to help us with what we're going through in life. Daily time in His Word, daily time in prayer, daily time worshiping Him and meditating upon Him. Every day we feed ourselves physical food. <laughs> and we enjoy it. I know I do. I look forward to my three meals and snacks in between in the day. But you know what? Do we feed ourselves in the same way? Do we look forward in the same way to that spiritual food, to that spiritual nutrition, to that recognition that I might be spiritually starving? Because I am not giving myself enough time with Jesus. It's our personal responsibility that we need to take advantage of. You know, if you're just eight on Sunday or eight on a Thursday night, you'd be pretty hungry the rest of the week. But sadly, for many Christians, that's all it is. I get spiritually fed once a week or maybe twice a week, but I don't do anything on my own. That's not the way that God wants it. He says, no, no, you take personal responsibility to study the word for yourself and to continue to nourish yourself spiritually. So God brings the Israelites to this wilderness of thorns. There's no food, but there's a great lesson to be learned. And there's many of them. One that we see from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But you know, God doesn't only have a lesson, He has this test. They've already failed at the beginning of the test. <laughs> Hey, you guys, just collect it. Don't collect more than you need. Yeah, right, I'm going to collect as much as I can. Well, now it turned into worms and it stank. But God has a more specific one to bring up a new law that he's about to share with them at Mount Sinai. Notice, we'll read verses 4 and 5 again, and then we'll get to the rest of this test. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Now here, notice verse 5, because this is what's going to connect. And it shall be on the sixth day that when they prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. 
Now, this is important because God already said, hey, day one, you better only collect enough for that day. Day two, same thing. Day three, day four, day five, day keep just once. Oh, no, we'll, we'll get as much as we can. Okay, well, now it bred worms and it stank. And they realized, okay, yeah, we can only get it for one day. But then God says, whoa, wait a second. On the sixth day, collect enough for two days. Well, we did that already. It bred worms and stank. No, it's not going to. On the sixth day only, I'm giving you permission to gather twice as much so that you can have food for two days. And now notice verse 22. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up until morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink. And there were, and there were no worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. So six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath will be none. There will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, and the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So God says, hey, all right, Israel, I have this specific instruction. Collect twice as much on the sixth day, well, why? What's the purpose of that? Well, because I have another thing that I want you to start establishing in what you do. The seventh day is now going to be a Sabbath day rest. And so on the sixth day, you're going to collect twice as much food. And not only are you going to collect that food on the sixth day, you're also going to bake it and you're going to make it. So when the seventh day comes, you have food prepared already. Why? So that you can take the seventh day and you can just rest. And God did not have that food with worms. That food did not stink. That food lasted for that seventh day. Now, the purpose of this test is for God once again. Will you do what I said? Will you collect twice as much on the sixth day? And will you not go out to try to collect anything on the seventh day? Because on the seventh day, I'm not going to provide anything. There's going to be double the amount of manna on the sixth day, and there will be none at all on the seventh. So will you do this simple command? It's not difficult. It's not hard to understand. Will you follow what I said, and will you rest on the seventh day? Well, this first time that God reveals to Israel that he wants them to have a Sabbath day rest The word Sabbath means to stop or to cease from doing something. And that's what God is saying. I want you to stop and cease from your work. This is a day of rest. You're going to have six days where you're going to collect, six days where you're going to work, six days where you're going to make food. But this day is a day where all that's going to stop. You're going to just rest on the seventh day. And the principle of the Sabbath is something that we saw way back when we started Genesis. Remember Genesis chapter 2? We see the creation of everything. Notice what we're told, verse 2 and 3. 
And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. God said, hey, six days I worked hard. I made everything. But you know what? On the seventh day, I didn't do anything at all. On the seventh day, I rested, and I am now sanctifying that day. I'm making this day a special day of rest for everyone else. I set the pattern. I did it, and now I want you as my people to do that as well. You know, this was for their good. And this is something that I think we so often miss about commands. And I wanted to say this about any command of God is for our good. So often it's like, oh, Lord, you give me this command. You're just trying to ruin my fun. You're trying to spoil my life. You're, you know, it's so horrible. And so I, No, no. I command things to do certain things and to avoid certain things for your good, for your benefit. And those of us who are parents, we know what it's like to be in that role of telling our kids, hey, don't do this. Oh, you're, you're so mean. You're just trying to ruin my life. No, I'm telling you not to do this for your own good. I'm trying to protect you. I know that if you do this, it's going to cause you pain. It's going to cause you hurt. I'm doing this for you. God, in the same way, I'm doing this for you. I want you guys to rest. I don't want you to kill yourself working. Have a day of rest. You would think, wow, great. I would be happy to sleep in on the seventh day. I'd be happy to rest. But we still have these Israelites who do not obey, who do not listen, and they go out looking for manna. Where's the manna? There's nothing out here. They weren't obedient. The first time we're told Moses got angry when they collected more than they should in one day. But notice, this time God is the one who's upset. How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So God brings this rebuke. What's wrong with you guys? I gave you simple commands. It's a test just to see if you obey me. Because I'm about to give you a lot more commands. And I want to know if you can just do this simple stuff of collecting only as much as you need and then collecting twice as much as you need and resting the next day. Come on, can we do that? Well, unfortunately for some of them, that was a little too much. Verse 32. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to and inhabited the land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now one omer is one-tenth of an ephod. And I'm glad that they put that measurement at the end because that helps everybody know exactly how much it is. But God provides this miraculous manna, but notice what he also says. I want you to take a bunch of this and I want you to preserve it by placing it in this you know, jar well, why? Well, why are we collecting this? I'm going to make sure that this doesn't you know, breed worms and stink. This is for not just you guys. This is for future generations. Because I'm going to eventually stop. We know it takes 40 years, but the man is going to stop. But I want the future generations, when they hear stories, God actually sent bread from heaven. 
I mean, that's not how God typically you know, provides for us. Lord, I need some money, and it starts raining dollars. You know, I mean, God usually does not provide literally from heaven falling down upon us. And so when these stories come out, I'm sure people are like, yeah, I mean, that's a little probably over-exaggerated. What, no, look, this is actually what it was. We have it right here. We know that they're going to put it into the Ark of the Covenant so that they can keep it and, and that for the future generations they could know. Because remember, God wants them to know not only that he's the Lord, but that he's their God. And he wants this to be continued to be remembered for each generation after this one that has seen these things, that they would be reminding their future generations of who God is to them and what he has done to provide for them, to deliver them, that he is truly their personal God who takes care of their personal needs. So here in the wilderness of thorns, they encounter another problem. But they also have a God who no problem is too big. He provides miracle food from heaven. He provides huge amounts of quail in the evening, takes care of their physical need for food. But he also brings this test. Are you going to obey me? Are you going to listen to just the simple instructions that I give because I want to see how well you're going to be able to do that? And you know, many of them fail that test. But hopefully even after that failure, they learn from that failure. And in these lessons that they have, hopefully they learn from that as well. And hopefully even as we look at this tonight, that we can remember that, you know what, we don't live just for food. We don't live to eat, hopefully. You know, we live for more. That there is a spiritual food that should be more important than physical food. That that should be the thing that each day we are taking time to invest in our spiritual life. We also need to realize, you know what, there's also a physical need that we have, and that's a need for rest. And oftentimes we go too much. And really, I think the Sabbath is a big, um, it's about faith. Am I going to believe that, you know what, if I don't do something for a day, that God's going to be able to take care of me? Because if I work seven days, I can have that extra day a week to bring in more money or to bring in more of this or more of that. If I don't do that, is God going to take care of me? And it's just a step of faith to say, Lord, you've told me to rest. And as I rest, I'm going to trust that you will take care of me as I sit back and don't do the things that I could do to maybe earn more or do this and that. And I think we struggle with that today of like, Lord, saying you need to rest. You need to take time to just rest physically. Oh, no, 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 I can't do that. i got to just earn, earn, do, do, work, work. And the Lord's saying, you're just going to burn yourself out. This is not good. So he's looking out for our spiritual needs, and he's also looking out for our physical needs, and we need to listen to him. He knows what's best for us, and if we put these things into practice, we will be blessed. Any thoughts on chapter 16? 